Let's first focus on that Delta overpass that was struck by a truck four months ago. Now, the overpass was damaged on July 18th when an overheight vehicle struck the underpass, ripping up steel, concrete, and wiring. Uh, here's a story from that day from Global News. Yet another Metro Vancouver overpass being struck after a truck with an oversized load struck that overpass earlier today. We did call the Surrey company Bright Sky Disposal and they tell us they don't know what happened earlier and are still waiting to talk to the driver. Highway 99 southbound at 17A is closed as engineers assess the damage. Highway 17A overpass is closed westbound. Now commercial drivers are responsible for ensuring their loads are within the parameters. The question again, how to curb this type of reckless behavior. Uh, that was a global news report uh, from July when that overpasses it. Well, joining me now is Delta Mayor George Harvey. Uh, George, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. How yeah, are you doing? I'm doing very well. We want to clarify a few things for our listeners and, and our commuters out there. Now, the, the Ministry of Transportation did announce Thursday uh, that they would be beginning repairs. I understand yourself and the Delta Chamber of Commerce released statements uh, that evening in regards to the to the work. Uh, can you just update us on what is happening now and what will be occurring in the, in the weeks ahead? Well, first of all, our staff have been working very hard with the ministry staff to look at alternatives to mitigate the you know, the traffic tie-ups that we're going to get and the delays in times. It affects a number of things, especially the commercial area of Tilbury, the breweries, the casino, the restaurants. Also, having an emergency access, quick access to the Delta uh, Hospital from that Tilbury industrial area. Uh, so it was a very big concern for us. I, I must give credit to uh, the Minister of Transportation, Rob Fleming. He's always been available for a phone call. I talked to him about it and uh, stated that we really need to support the requests from the Chamber and many businesses uh, to delay the project until January. As you know, Christmas is the busiest time for uh, commercial businesses, especially restaurants, mm-hmm. and uh, things are so tough for people right now running the small little businesses. Uh, this would have been a drastic time for them. So I'm very pleased that he agreed to do that very quickly. So uh, so if you're starting in January, this is a, this is a 12-week period now instead of the 8, if, I, if I'm right in regards to the timeline? Yeah, there's always something goes wrong with these projects. I thought eight weeks was not going to do it based upon our experience on these types of projects. And certainly there's a major, major uh, structural repairs that have to be done to that overpass. Um, but it shows another thing, Jazz, is that we desperately need another way out of Ladner. Mm. Uh, we've been, as you know, been saying, I was in Ottawa, you know, the uh, Liberal government promised to look at that. They haven't yet. I'm very disappointed with that. Uh, but if we had the second exit of Ladner, which would have been an extension of River Road heading east, uh, over top of 99, towards the River House, and going back uh, south towards the casino, and you can loop in that way, if we had that, that would take off a huge portion of traffic that now has to go through Ladner Trunk Road and funnel through 17A. So that is something that we really need to have done. And this shows an example as to why we need it. So uh, the overpass right now, uh, uh, how is it uh, configured in regards to just moving vehicles, even though it's still damaged? But obviously, you know, traffic still has to come and go. How is it configured right now? Uh, It's a patchwork right now. It's uh, minimum lanes. It's still causing a backup, but at least traffic was flowing. Uh, I travel that route uh, at least uh, twice a week going to my office in Metro, Metro Town. Uh, what I do, uh, leaving uh, Tawasson, is I continue on the SFPR, go over the overpass, and instead of heading south on 99, 
I turn left and I catch into the 99 and I go through the third lane. Um, but even the other day when we had that traffic uh, problems on Alex Fraser Bridge, it took me a heck of a long time to get to Metro Town. Uh, traffic seems to be building up towards the volumes that we had pre-COVID, uh, but certainly uh, shutting that access down on the 17A overpass is going to be a huge effect for us. So again, our staff are looking at how we can work with it with the ministry staff to divert a lot of traffic. We may be looking at using the farmer's access uh, they have. We used to call it the old cow, the cow tunnel, as you well remember. Mm-hmm. So if we could even use that, uh, talk to Kevin Quinn, CEO for TransLink. Unfortunately, buses are too big for that, but we certainly could move some traffic in that area. So this gives us good time to have a professional staff work with the ministry and come up with some other routing that won't solve everything, but certainly it'll lessen the impact. Now, on the uh, north side of the um, the Massey Tunnel, of course, they're working on the at Steveston overpass. At, uh, I think it was 1959 when it was completed. Uh, was there any talk about just replacing the overpass on the on the, on the uh, south side of the uh, of, of the tunnel? I mean, it's uh, w- with the amount of traffic on a Twas and uh, Delta ferry users, South Fraser Perimeter Road, wherever it may be. I mean, it's not like there's less traffic in that part of uh, South Delta. Was there any conversation about just just replacing that overpass at all? Well, the unfortunate thing is that it's too bad that the uh, the dump truck that hit it didn't hit it a little hard because it was almost uh, so bad that they were going to have to replace it. But now they've decided that they have the ability, after all the engineering work that's been on it, to, to, to just repair it. Uh, but you're absolutely right. And again, that's why we need to divert more traffic away from that, uh, the Ladner traffic, which, as you know, it's growing intensely with the townhouses, which we're very pleased to see. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are moving to Ladner. But if we can eliminate a lot of traffic from Ladner, utilizing that one pinch point along with Swanson traffic, uh, that's where the second exit of Ladner will be coming. So vital for us. And one day you're going to develop that waterfront in Ladner, too, and that'll add more people because it is, it's a great little spot there, but you're right. It, it, like every other corner of the Lower Mainland, it's growing, and our infrastructure hasn't, um, hasn't grown as quickly, and, and we need it to. Absolutely. Yeah. George, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay, and uh, again, uh, very much appreciate the minister helping us out on this, and again, it's nice to have a working relationship with the government. Thank Absolutely. you so much. I'm joined by Jerry Mayor Judson, and we're going to have a little conversation about the story of the moment. Uh, that, of course, is tickets. Tickets to the Stanley Park train mm-hmm. and tickets to uh, Ms. Taylor Swift. Oh, yes. So where do you want to start? you want to start with the um, Stanley Park train? Yeah, let's get into the Stanley Park train, because as we well know, what, 23,000 tickets sold out in 90 like minutes? That. Allegedly. Yes. Allegedly. 23,000. Uh, first of all, talk about demand. Oh my gosh, people have been clamoring for this choo-choo train. Exactly. Well, we've been talking about it, but it also speaks to how many people enjoy it. And it's part of like Vancouver culture. Uh, it's the stuff we do during the season, Christmas, Halloween, whatever it is. It's, but it speaks to, that's the kind of stuff government should be doing. Now, uh, 23,000 tickets sold in 90 minutes. Now, one of the people, one of the individuals who wanted to buy one of those tickets was one of, one of our colleagues here at CKNW, Amy. And uh, we, we, did we, how do we find out that she didn't get, was it just some yelling out of the office or something? <laughs> it was uh, potentially yes, some yelling out of the office. Really? If you want to hear, if you want, if you want to take a listen. Let's take a listen to uh, our Amy Beeman, who uh, I guess started yelling in the office and somebody went to check up on her. Turns out she wanted to get the train tickets and she couldn't. Take a listen. But it says 23,000 tickets were sold in another 90 minutes. I logged on at 9.24, I was in the queue for 38 minutes. 
So it was on before 10 a.m., which is 60 minutes, and there were no tickets. I could not get a single ticket for a single night for a single time. 90 minutes. Nuh-uh. This is worse than Taylor Swift. Look at I'm still sending things to my friends. Just one train running. Everybody was talking about it. All the moms groups. All we wanted to do was to go to Stanley Park and ride the train. And it doesn't look like we'll be doing that again this year. T3,000. And they don't have enough space. Only nope. with 23,000. Uh, and they can't accommodate people in wheelchairs either. Can't accommodate wheelchairs either. It is, it's, it's felt like a fumble. So there were some concerns about reselling these tickets, of course. And that's what everyone, it seems like was talking about. It's like, well, can you find tickets? There was, I have one listing here from Craigslist from 19 hours ago. People were looking to sell this big block of tickets that they bought. So I think this is the problem is people bought a bunch of tickets at a time. Um, this person was selling Stanley Park Bright Night Christmas Train for November 30th at 9.40 at night. I have six adult tickets and two kid tickets for $131. They were looking to get rid of them. But I tried to click on it, and it has since been deleted. So I'm sure they moved the tickets. There's big demand here. There's someone scalping tickets now? On sc- for the choo-choo train. Oh, it's just, it's it's supposed to be festive and nice, and now it's it feels seedy. Corrupted. Yeah, yeah. You know what's I wonder if the city should have waited a year and then you'd have more capacity for more people. More wheelchairs? Could, more, well, exactly. Wheelchairs well, at all? Accessible for all Vancouver. I'd yeah. Say. It's ridiculous. All right. Well, I mean, all right. It is what it is. Let's talk about the other Ticket big issue. event. Yes. Taylor Swift. Three nights. So that's mm-hmm. the capacity for BC Place is about 60,000 people. 54, I think. Yeah. 54. Okay. Mm-hmm. 54, 50, 54 or something like that. Plus the floor. Yes. Right? Plus the floor. So you're looking at about 170,000 tickets probably over yep. three days, right? Uh, and scalpers are already out of there as well, right? This is the most insane reseller markup that I have ever heard of. I do believe Stephen Chang has been keeping abreast of it and, and kind of telling us what the cost of the tickets are. But it was something like what the upper bowl was outrageous for the Friday night because it's the cheaper of the two. So the Friday night was something like, what, $1,700 for a pair of two Taylor Swift tickets? $1,700 for two of them. For the nosebleeds. For the nosebleeds. Stephen is that number correct? Do you recall 1700 That is absolutely correct, Jazz, as a matter of fact. I've been looking and monitoring through these ticket sales throughout the day, and if you want to sit behind the stage in the upper bowl section, you're going to be looking to shell at least um, $1,000 each for a pair of tickets. So basically, you might even have to pay $1,500 starting from there. If you're looking at floor seats, you might even have to pay $5,000. Oh, I believe it. I was looking at this Toronto Star story. So when the tickets went on sale the other day, as of 12 noon Vancouver time, just an hour after the first round of tickets uh, were sold, uh, StubHub had one ticket available. The person was selling two, but each ticket was for $19,984. So $20,000. That's someone's student debt that you could erase by selling just two Taylor Swift tickets. This is what I hate about the capitalism that we find ourselves in. I'm going to go, no, not going to go on a big rant. But honestly, do you remember when you could just go onto Ticketmaster at a time of day that they were releasing 
all of the tickets and you could put in your little code, not even a code. You could just put in, I would like to go see this band, please. And you could just buy a, a ticket, ticket for a hundred dollars and it would be a really good seat. And now we're talking 20,000 for that was on seat geek and StubHub. It was up to $10,350. Oh my land. <laughs> It's just so. It makes me sick. I know, I know. Well, I mean, some even if someone's willing to pay that. Uh, uh, here's the other thing, though. Uh, what if you did manage to get four tickets at whatever uh, they they charge for those tickets, three hundred dollars a pop or four hundred bucks? Would you not be tempted to sell it if you had debt? I have debt, and I don't. I don't think I can morally do that. I would. I can't. I wouldn't want to exploit anybody. I might turn if I had to. I might turn a tiny profit, but I'm not gonna hawk them for twenty thousand dollars. No. If I purchase a ticket for three hundred dollars, maybe I try to sell it for four hundred dollars, three fifty. I don't know. <laughs> maybe go. I'm not that good. Today, uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix and Provincial Health Officer Dr. Benny Henry held a, a press conference uh, providing an update on the ongoing respiratory illness season in the province's uh, immunization campaign. Joining me now is Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's Provincial Health Officer. Dr. Henry, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, lots to talk about here. Let's uh, first and foremost uh, touch on a little bit of the issue of COVID. Um, you know, we've been preparing, obviously, for, for this season, uh, the fall, fall and winter season. Can you give us an update in regards to uh, if we're seeing any increases in COVID-19 over the last little while? Yeah, so we saw uh, it start to increase in transmission and hospitalizations and cases near the end of the summer and through September. And we had a a smaller peak um, earlier in October, and we've seen it level off and come down a bit. But that doesn't mean it's gone. And that's the thing with uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We still don't know um, exactly what sort of patterns it's going to follow. I think the, the decrease is also correlated when we started to to provide vaccination, particularly for those people who are most at risk, those older people, people with underlying illnesses. And, uh, and so that, I'm sure, made a difference as well. But it's not too late. We know that uh, COVID is still circulating. That, and as we're going into the time of year where we like to get together with others over the the next coming uh, weeks and months, it's it's time now to to get that updated vaccine so you have the best protection possible. Mm-hmm. Are there uh, are hospitals uh, uh, preparing for a potential surge? Uh, obviously, it's not going to be as bad as you know a couple of years ago, but are hospitals making that, uh, or are they preparing for the potential surge? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we don't yet know um, how bad it's going to be. So we do need to be prepared. We've known that even before the pandemic, in the winter months, we tend to see more of these respiratory viruses. We're indoors more. We get together with people in, over the holidays. So we've often seen peaks of, of RSV uh, in the fall and influenza for sure in the fall and in the winter. And usually that peak is somewhere around January. So yes, we are preparing now. And now we have not only RSV and influenza, but we have uh, COVID in the mix as well. Mm-hmm. In regards to um, the res- respiratory illnesses, you're, you're already seeing, has there been a significant increase in, in, in the last little while or, or is it while, or is it just a, a case of the, the increase you generally see this time of the year? Well, it is going back to a pattern that's more similar to what we saw before the pandemic. Okay. So we had a couple of years when the pandemic started where we didn't see any influenza. And then last year we had a bit of an unusual year where we had quite a, a, a peak of, 
of both influenza and RSV very early in, in October and November last year. And that was really challenging, especially um, in children. So we are seeing it going back to more what we would expect um, prior to the pandemic, at least with respect to influenza. So yes, influenza is starting to increase now. It's likely going to get worse over the next few weeks. And, and again, that's another reason why getting vaccinated to protect you from influenza now is really important. Uh, in regards to uh, administrating those influenza shots and the COVID shots, uh, how are we doing so far? We're doing really well. And I think this is, you know, people are paying attention to this here in BC. Um, We've been following what's happening. We saw that the COVID was increasing in the late summer and early fall. So I'm really, I'm really proud of how people are stepping up. And we've delivered over a million 70,000 doses of influenza vaccine and over 850,000 doses of, uh, of an updated COVID vaccine. So that's a great start. And we know that we started with the people who are most at risk. So people over the age of 65, um, pregnant people, people with immune compromising conditions and other health conditions. So that's great. That means the people most at risk are getting protected. But everybody's got their invites now. So um, for all the rest of us, it's, it's not too late. And it's really important to get those get those vaccines so you have the best protection you can as we're going into the into the holiday season. In regards to that message that you've just delivered, do you con- are you concerned at all about fatigue? The public is tired of getting their shots or hearing about uh, COVID uh, because we've spent so much time on, on this issue, of course, with the pe- global pandemic. Are you worried about just fatigue setting in with the public and, and being more difficult for you to convince people moving forward about getting those shots and being uh, focused on making sure we continue to, to, to the fight against uh, COVID? Maybe people are fatigued from hearing me talk about it, but but I think it's very real for people. And, you know, we all have somebody in our lives who are more at risk of having severe illness. And we've known that even before COVID was in the mix. You know, influenza has can have really horrible effects on the older people, on long-term care homes. So, um, you know, as much as we might not want to talk about it anymore, it is an important part of our life. So it is important this time of the year. It protects us. It protects those around us. It helps protect our health care system, too, so that we do have the ability to, to care for everybody who needs it. I've got one final question, and it's indirectly related, obviously, what we're talking about. Uh, there were a couple of MLAs this week are arguing that um, uh, you should be fired, and I don't want to get into the specifics in, of, of that allegation. But my broader question to you is, do you get tired? Because you've had a lot on your plate <laughs> since the days of COVID, uh, and you're, you get criticism from certain elements of society as well. Um, uh, are, are, do you get tired of it, though? I'm very curious because uh, I don't know how you deal with it because uh, a lot of the criticism, in my opinion, is unfair, uh, not warranted, not based on science. But uh, I'd love to hear what you think of all this because you certainly do catch criticism, unfair criticism in my mind, but you do catch it. Do you get tired of all this? Well, thanks for that. Um, you, you know, it's hard sometimes, particularly with some of the rhetoric, uh, and it does affect you. And I'm certainly tired of that, and and some of it is quite hurtful. Um, but I I also you know I'm very passionate about the work that we do. I I happen to be the face and the voice of a a very strong public health team in this province, and I'm very proud of them. I'm proud of the work that we've done together, and you know I really appreciate that most people in BC 
um, understand why we're doing this and understand the importance of the messages we have. So, you know, that makes me feel much better about everything. Well, that term silent majority, I think, is fit and they probably don't say much, but uh, there's a whole silent majority out there that are, that, that are there cheering for you as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Henry. Well, thank you so much. So before we get uh, to Keith Baldry to talk about the week that was in politics, I wanted to let you know that we spoke to uh, George Harvey, the mayor of Delta, at the three o'clock hour. We talked a little bit about the fact that uh, that overpass that was struck uh, just on the south side of the Massey Tunnel back in July. Uh, they've delayed uh, the repair uh, until January. Many local businesses in that area were worried about the impact the construction would have on traffic. And of course, it's a busy time of the year uh, for a lot of struggling small businesses. So they're going to delay the um, the uh, repair until January. Uh, but one of the things I did bring up with the mayor was the fact that on the north side of the Massey Tunnel, of course, you have that Steveston overpass built in 1959. So it had to be replaced and they are replacing it, widening it. And uh, of course, that's part of the broader uh, tunnel construction and, and, and revamping the Massey, uh, Massey Crossing there. But I did say, you know, wouldn't it have been better uh, if um, that overpass on the south side, which is also an older overpass, and there's a significant growing population in South Delta as well, why not just replace that whole overpass with something new? Take a listen to his comments. Well, the unfortunate thing is uh, it's too bad that the, uh, the dump truck that hit it didn't hit it a little hard because it was almost uh, so bad that they were going to have to replace it. But now they've decided that they have the ability, after all the engineering work that's been done, to, to, to just repair it. Uh, so my question to you for, for our buzz lines is, do you think we just should replace that overpass? Uh, I know, I guess you can fix it, uh, but it does need to be replaced. It needs to be widened. Uh, call me on the buzz line, 604-331-2899. That's 604-331-2899. Or email me, jazz at cknw.com. And of course, the other buzz line question today is, uh, how much are you willing to pay for Taylor Swift tickets. Uh, StubHub had uh, tickets up to $10,000 each for the BC Place concert. One, uh, I think it was SeatGeek, up to $20,000 uh, for one ticket to um, to Taylor Swift. Uh, all right, well, let's uh, focus on something else beyond just Taylor Swift and overpasses. That, of course, uh, politics here in our province this week. Joining me now is Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, Keith Baldry. Hello, Keith. Hey, Jess. Uh, you've got older daughters, but uh, I'm, I'm sure when they were younger, they would probably want to go to Taylor Swift. Would you have paid 500 bucks, 600 bucks a ticket? Oh, they still want to go to Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor Swift is a major voice in my household for as the father of two young women. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd pay 500 bucks to yeah. see Taylor Swift for sure. I mean, I, I think she's a cultural phenomenon, the likes of which we really haven't seen since you know, the Beatles, literally. I mean, it just uh, reaches so far into our culture, the dwarfs a lot of other entertainment acts by far. So yeah, I'd pay 500. Would I pay 2000 I'm not sure about that. Yeah, so exactly. I'd definitely pay 500 There you go. All right. Well, look, we've got a couple big things I want to talk to you about. One is housing and one, the other is, of course, the BC Conservatives. But let's focus on housing first and foremost. A massive amount of housing legislation being unveiled this week and last week as well to a greater density uh, where people were able to build three to six units on a single family lot, uh, pre-zoning of land, and also being able to build... Uh, um, 20-story buildings uh, within 800 meters of transit hubs and of uh, bus lanes as well. Um, how sweeping is this in your mind? Oh, I think it's the most sweeping kind of legislation we've ever seen in BC history. I mean, this is four very extensive, far-reaching bills. Um, there's bound to be some unintended consequences. 
you've had mayors on on either side of some of these issues worrying about is it an overreach by Victoria? It certainly is a big reach by Victoria into the over the heads of elected municipal councils on some issues that are fundamental to city council, not zoning and how your, what your neighborhoods are going to look like and this type of thing. So housing is a complex issue to, to solve or, to, or the crisis is hard to, to solve. This is a very, I will use the word bold and provocative series of bills, but I don't think anyone can really say how this is all going to end up whether or not there's going to be some unintended consequences that people don't like, I think that's almost inevitable. Uh, and to, to, just to confirm, this is legislation that will be passed, but there will be changes in regulation after that. Like, we won't see the full impact of this uh, probably until mid-2024. Oh, yeah. No, there's still, there's still a lot of details lacking in this legislation. Uh, the one on transit that was introduced, I think it was yesterday, about requiring transit uh, hubs to have uh, increased density. There's a little more, there's more detail in that bill than, say, the amenities bill, the ability for municipalities to put le- levies on developments to pay for infrastructure costs. Not a lot of detail in that. The short-term rental bill, which is the ban on on uh, a minimum three-month stay, uh, anything less than that is not allowed. There's a lot of details lacking in that. So those will come in the regulations. So I think there's a lot of nervousness out there amongst mayors and city councils who like some of this stuff, for sure. But others, I think, are making them a little nervous because they haven't seen the fine print yet. Yeah, and I like I said, even small things like uh, secondary suites and laneway houses in established neighborhoods, it does shake up the character of the neighborhood, and there are those who are very comfortable with the single-family neighborhood just the way it is. I sometimes wonder what the blowback's going to be, and I'm not saying it's a generational difference, but there is a bit of a generational difference in regards to a younger generation that wants to get into the market and those that have been there for a very long time. So it'll be very interesting how all of that plays out. I want to ask you another question. It's a, a something that came up from CMHC, and now we all know we have high interest rates, and uh, many people have said it's going to be a while before those interest rates head downwards, and it may take a while for them. They may have gone up quickly, but they may go down slower. But CMHC says close to 300,000 homeowners across the country have already been hit with significantly higher payments. Uh, but they're also saying that in 2024 and 2025, up to 2.2 million mortgage borrowers will be renewing, which represents 45% of all outstanding Canadian mortgages. These people should expect between the 30 to 40% increase in mortgage payments. um, And that uh, CMHC uh, estimates will mean an additional $15 billion in payments collectively. Um, This is a bit of a ticking time bomb, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, particularly in a place like uh, BC, where home prices are off the charts. So many people are walking around out there with pretty hefty mortgages um, mm-hmm. where they're not paying off the, the principal. They're paying basically almost 100% interest. And when you're, when you're carrying a $400,000, $500,000, $600,000 mortgage, uh, that type of interest rate, 5%, can have an enormous impact on your pocketbook. Now, I can remember, frankly, back in the mm-hmm. 80s when the interest rate was approaching 20%. Uh, but, uh, and again, well, incomes are relative, but back then housing wasn't costing a million uh, plus dollars for uh, you know, a standalone house. It was maybe $200,000. So the mortgages being held by people back then weren't nearly as big as they are now, even though the interest rate was much higher than what we're seeing now. You know, we bought our house, my wife and I bought our house here in Victoria 30 years ago, and our interest rate was 7%. Um, which is higher than what uh, you know people are looking at today, but that was a f- more affordable because we weren't we didn't have to buy a you know a million million and a half dollar property back then. H- housing prices were around you know two hundred two hundred fifty thousand. 
So the interest rates were higher, but they were easier to um, to pay off, or at least to carry. This is going to be very hard for many people to carry. Yeah. And it, I just don't see housing prices going down, even with what the government's proposing with this legislation. So the demand will still be there. Um, but a lot of people are going to be feeling some, some hurt because the Bank of Canada number two yesterday, um, forget her name, but the, the vice governor said no interest rates are going to be around this level for some time yet. Yeah, and it, and what I meant by the ticking time bomb, it's a political ticking time bomb, and I know it's not fair. Bank of Canada sets the rates, uh, but uh, don't tell me that uh, Justin Trudeau is not going to hear about it, and Pierre Pauly is not going to try to 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 use it to his advantage. Don't think for a moment David Eby is not going to hear about it, and the opposition mm-hmm. parties won't be using it to their advantage. I mean, I mean, this is going to be a clear and present issue for governments, uh, provincially and uh, well, it's all It's all part of the affordability issue, which is very wide, widely cast. It's not just housing. It's food costs. You know, it's, it's energy costs. Everything is going up. Incomes are not keeping pace with the cost of living increases. And so, yeah, housing is one big problem with it, but, you know, there's a host of others as well. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, about politics uh, this past week. Now, in the legislature this week, um, the BC Conservatives, that's uh, John Rusthead and Bruce Banman, the MLAs, uh, invited uh, unvaxxed fired healthcare workers. I do believe that was on Wednesday. Uh, And uh, Mr. Banwin, um, the MLA for Abbotsford South, went uh, before uh, the the legislature there during the question period and demanded that Dr. Bonnie Henry, our provincial health officer, uh, be fired. Take a listen. Dr. Bonnie Henry and this NDP government have banned thousands of healthcare workers from working in BC's hospitals, clinics, doctor's offices and Washington. ERs. This NDP government is failing working class, everyday British Columbians, and so is Dr. Henry. My question to this NDP Premier, will he fire Dr. Bonnie Henry and hire back the thousands of healthcare workers who were wrongly kicked to the curb? People in BC know that we as a province led the world in our response to COVID-19. We did so because we respected science. We respected our public health leaders, and we had an outstanding public health leader, Dr. Bonnie Henry, leading that. There are jurisdictions that have intervened to fire the provincial health officer. We are proud of ours, we support ours, and we're going to continue to do so. That was the exchange on Wednesday. Keith, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think Adrian Dix uh, uh, articulated it well. We've done well in regards to our fight against COVID. Have we been perfect as a, as a healthcare system? Probably not. But in regards to keeping people healthy, uh, I would argue we've done a pretty good job. But I mean, I'm just taken aback that Mr. Banman A said that and he would go that far to actually want a public uh, or health officer fired. I thought it was ridiculous. Um, as someone who's basically been at every one of Bonnie Henry's briefings for three and a half years, um, people say, oh, you know, give Bonnie Friendly a free hand. It's basically following the science. Bandman has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, he also used this as a very personal attack. He called, uh, he called her a basically, in his words, end the medical tyranny of Dr. Bonnie Henry. So calling her a tyrant. Um, people have disagreed with some of the measures. Certainly there was a disagreement on, do we keep the schools open? 
on a ban on parties. Uh, people are upset at the funerals. If you go back two years, three years, remember those days mm-hmm. when we couldn't gather, all that sorts of thing. Yeah, some of this was controversial, but by and large, the public accepted it. And the proof is, and we just got an update today on vaccination. So about 90% of British Columbians have at least two um, doses of uh, vaccine for COVID-19. As of now, 1.1 million people this in the last month have went in and got the flu vaccine. So there is support for vaccinations. Uh, As someone with a relative in a long-term care home, I do not want someone looking after my relative who doesn't believe in the science and therefore refuses to get vaccinated and runs the risk of bringing a terrible disease in, whether it's COVID or something else. So, uh, no, I think the danger, I think, the conservatives did here by, by, again, you and I talked about this yesterday, they're yoking themselves to these fringe positions. I mean, most people, as I say, got vaccinated. The vast majority, 99.5% of healthcare workers got vaccinated. So we're going to throw away that to appease less than 2,000 people who are not full-time medical practitioners. We're talking casual workers for the most part uh, who have not noticeably damage the system because they're not working there. So I just thought by by going down the fringe route, the B.C. Conservatives are going to limit their appeal at a time when it's never been more conducive for that party to expand their appeal. But in stunts like this, uh, I just don't think that do that party any good at all. Well, Dr. Henry was uh, on this program at 3.30 to talk about uh, COVID numbers today, but uh, I, I, in the back of my mind said, I'm going to ask her uh, about uh, Mr. Bannerman and just the broader uh, criticism from um, the fringe elements of society. Take a listen to her comments. You know, it's hard sometimes, particularly with some of the rhetoric, uh, and it does affect you, and I'm certainly tired of that, and, and some of it is quite hurtful. Um, but I, I also, you know, I'm very passionate about the work that we do. I, I happen to be the face and the voice of a, a very strong public health team in this province, and I'm very proud of them. I'm proud of the work that we've done together. And, you know, I really appreciate that most people in BC um, understand why we're doing this and understand the importance of the messages we have. So, you know, that makes me feel much better about everything. I think that's probably the best way to close the the interview. I, I'm I'm with you, Keith. I was just appalled the way it was presented in the legislature as a stunt. And uh, if you know the BC Conservatives want to be a long-term political player, then you know what? Find the political center. Yeah. Uh, and this fringe stuff is just just. You know, just and one of the saddest comments, and uh, I see Dr. Bonnie Henry all the time down here, the legislature, she still needs and requires an RCMP security escort because of the threat she gets. So that's where some of this mentality is coming from. Unbelievable. Keith, thank you so much for your time. Have right, a great weekend. weekend. Joined by Jerry Mayor Judson, and um, we were talking uh, during the break uh, regarding short-term rentals, Airbnb. We've spent a lot of time on this issue here at CKNW, and mm-hmm. um, you and I were talking a few weeks ago. Uh, you live um, in Burnaby around Metrotown. I do indeed. And so were you noticing, like, after this legislation came down that things were happening? Oh, my gosh. So fall, the end of fall is, yeah. or, yeah, whatever, middle of fall, end of October. Yeah. Slow real estate season, right? We yeah. conceive of, if you want to buy a house, you do it tax return time. You do it in the spring. That's when people make big purchases. Slow market usually, but I've been seeing because I do, I live right in the middle of it. I live right across the street from Metrotown Sky, Sky Train Station. Mm-hmm. And I've seen like, there are. I looked online, there are dozens of condos for sale in Metrotown. Mm-hmm. Last weekend, 
between my apartment and Metropolis Mall, I walked past four open houses, four of them going on the same day. And the weekend before, there was three to five of them, I think, as well. So I thought about it and I'm like, well, this is supposed to be slow real estate season. But I was like... What gives? But of course, what does give is the mid-October, the provincial government said that there's going to be new legislation around and regulations around short-term rentals. So I thought, oh, is this because of the legislation? Mm Because I know for sure there are Airbnbs in my neighborhood. I've looked it up just to see because I wanted to make myself angry when I was living there. I was like, what? Perfectly good apartment is on Airbnb right now. I wanted to make myself angry. I do it a lot. I tick myself off a lot. (laughs) So I did. I went and I talked to, because I was really curious. I went to Leo Spaltholtz. He is an independent real estate analyst and at House Hunt Victoria. That's his website. It's his blog. And he's also a zoning reform advocate with Homes for a Living. So I asked Leo, is there a similar situation in Victoria? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a huge jump, right? Usually I've, what I've been doing is tracking the listings in these previously grandfathered buildings. There's about 18 of them in downtown Victoria that allowed short-term rentals, and now it's being it's being phased out. And there's been a big jump in listings in those buildings, right? That's happening both in the resale market, so they're being listed for sale, and also being listed for long-term rentals. From what I've been reading, it doesn't sound like the units that are, are for sale now, it doesn't sound like they're exactly priced to sell either. No. And I did an analysis on, you know, what is the short-term rental premium, right? I mean, these places that allowed short-term rentals were selling for more. You know, they tend to be smaller units, so you have to compare it to similar units. My uh, conclusion there was it's about 10 to 15 percent, right, was that short-term rental premium. And unfortunately for owners, that evaporated overnight, right? As soon as that announcement came in, that's basically gone. And then the secondary effect is, you know, all things equal more condos on the market means a downward pressure on prices. And the market was already cooling and there's already inventory building so due to higher rates. So it kind of piles on top of each other there. Good news if you are trying to access a home, but bad news if, of course, you're trying to maybe cut your losses on an investment that's not going to work out in the 2024 wedding season like you thought it was going to. Yeah. And I mean, if we look right now, um, there's 63 listings for condos uh, up right now for sale that are in these short-term rental buildings, that's very unusual for this time of year. And there's only been one sale of any of those units since those regulations came into effect. So I think that gives you a clue as to where buyers think the value is and, and where sellers think the value is. And, and they're quite far apart at this point. Do you like have any predictions on what winter might look like in the Victoria real estate world? Do you think we're going to see even more of this offloading happening? Do you think people are going to maybe try to snatch them up? Do you feel comfortable speculating? Yeah, it's always hard to predict, right? I think most predictions about real estate end up being wrong. But I do think for this particular niche of, you know, small downtown condos that were previously short-term rentals, that's going to be an extremely tough market, right? You know, this rush of supply, it's already at a time when people aren't really buying because of high interest rates and investors especially have pulled back because the numbers just just don't work anymore. And, you know, also we're going into the winter, right? That's when buying activity usually drops off very drastically in, in November and December. So 
you know, unless a seller is going to be very, very flexible with their price, that's going to be a, a tough argument to make to sell something right now. I don't think a lot of other cities, other than perhaps Kelowna, had these buildings that were really zoned for short-term rentals, and so they attracted a lot of short-term rentals. So the impact of the the Airbnb regulation as a whole is not that high, but in Victoria and potentially in Kelowna, it's going to be a bigger impact in the short term, right? Because these units are coming back to the market. And also one would argue mm-hmm. um, that interest rates uh, are not going to go down very fast. And so these folks are stuck with these as well. I mean, it's going to be a while. Mm-hmm. I was just looking um, at some numbers with Keith Baldry uh, during the four o'clock, uh, first half of the four o'clock. So CMHC says that um, well, 300,000 homeowners have already been hit with significant, significantly higher payments because of the rising interest rates. That's right. But uh, in 2024 and 2025, up to 2.2 million mortgage borrowers will be renewing. That's 45%, nearly 50% of all outstanding mortgages in the country. Oh, wow. So the pain that we're talking about, That's we're not tough. there yet. So the next two years, if it, with interest rates up, is going to be significant. And the cumulative increase, they believe, is going to be about $15 billion in extra payments for all those people. So people say, oh, the interest rate's rising, and it's, it's hitting the market. It is. But we're not even there yet. We're not even there yet because the, it has to, exactly, these things take longer than we anticipate. And yeah, then, people locked into those five-year closed, right? Yeah. So, so far, they, a lot of them have been protected, but they're all coming up. So 50%, almost 50% of all the mortgages out there still haven't come up yet. That's so, terrifying. It is. Everyone is scared. Renters are scared that the people that own their homes are, of course, going to, you know, hike the rent. And then homeowners, of course, are terrified because if your cost of living all of a sudden goes up, what, 2000 extra dollars a month in the really negative, like, in the really, like, negative end, that's crazy to me. Like, that is, I don't understand how people are allowed to get away with that. Well, it's, <laughs> uh, some will call it, the economists may call it a readjustment. I would call it a bloodbath in some cases. 100%. If you, I'm if with you, have, you. If you have stretched yourself thin. Yeah. And I think some people have, and that's the sad part. But, you know, I, I think all Ultimately, the core issue, whether you know, you're know you an Airbnb person or not, housing still has to be for local people first. 100%. Right? I agree with and you. And I think generally that's where the public are at. And uh, anything after that, so be it. But right now, uh, when you have to pay almost 3000 for a one-bedroom in some cases mm-hmm. in Vancouver proper, uh, that's not a good thing, that's for sure. But what's happening with single-use plastics in Canada? CKNW contributor Scott Chance takes a look. So here in BC, we're all about being green, right? Which is why it should come as no surprise that we're banning single-use plastics. Now, we all know how bad these things are. You know, the stuff like takeout containers and utensils, plastic water bottles, and yes, of course, straws. All those things that used to get used just one time and then tossed to either end up in a landfill or even worse, floating in the ocean. Well, all across Canada, a federal ban is coming into place December 20th that will regulate the use of single-use plastics and here in BC we'll get provincial regulations in December as well. But wait, I thought we were already doing this. Like every time I get a drink somewhere I get some crappy paper straw that turns to pulp before I'm even halfway through my drink. Well, yes, that is true. We do already have some legislation around this stuff, but that comes from a ban at the municipal level, like here in the city. And speaking of, if single-use plastics are banned, how come I can still get a plastic bag at some stores? Anyone else feeling a little bit confused? Think about how frustrating this must be for businesses here in BC trying to navigate what they're allowed to use or not use. 
Well, not to worry, my friends. Help is on the way. Enter Brandon Leeds, an industry leader in sustainable packaging options, but also the creator of a new free single-use plastics guidebook to help us navigate exactly what we can use, when and where. And needless to say, he's heard from enough people in the industry, and he gets it. There's uh, more general bands going on and then more specific bands in different areas so as you can imagine there's a lot of confusion people aren't really sure uh, what exactly is being banned where like imagine trying to figure out all these different levels of legislation where you're inside the lines where you're not all while trying to run a successful business which is why their guide is designed to be as easy to navigate as possible before our guide you would have to go uh, either to the federal government's website and then go to your provincial government's website and start comparing to figure out, okay, what's banned at the federal level? Okay, what's banned at the provincial level? So it's a huge headache. Uh, so we put together a comprehensive guide for restaurants, large chains, pretty much anyone in the food service industry to be able to go to and within 60 seconds figure out, okay, for my business, these are the items that are banned. These are the items I should be buying. Uh, these are great long-term solutions for the future. So we've tried to make something as, as easy as possible to help people navigate uh, these upcoming bans. And maybe you're asking yourself, how bad is this single-use plastic stuff anyway? Well, to give you an idea, here in Canada, we produce 3.3 million tons of plastic waste every year. And over a third of that is plastics that are made for single use. That's over 15 billion plastic bags and 57 million plastic straws. Now think about all of that ending up in the ocean. Oh, no, no, wait, Scott, wait, you're saying. We we recycle our plastic, it doesn't end up in the trash. Okay, well maybe you do, but understand this, you are not everyone, and everyone certainly does not recycle their plastic waste. Only eight percent of plastic actually gets recycled, and as much as 86 percent of it ends up in a landfill. So now we have a guide to help us understand how to navigate this brave new world. But what about the products themselves? Well, there's a reason Brandon and his company were so concerned with getting the word out here in BC. Our company is called Sophie Products, and we make innovative, eco-friendly paper products uh, that focus on being cost-efficient and also great for the environment and for our customers' experiences. A lot of our customers are confused, and we thought it'd be great to put together a resource to help them navigate this, these times while also being able to provide those solutions as well that they're looking for. And now to come to the most important question. Let's eliminate all this plastic nonsense, but what are we gonna replace it with? We all know about the straws, the cutlery, and the containers that just don't cut it in terms of usage. I mean, who wants to have a bunch of paper pulp mixed into their iced latte or to have their to-go container leak soup all over the car? Well, for Brandon and his team at Sophie, this whole thing started with making products that aren't just better for the environment, but better for the consumer as well. So our first product uh, was the paper straw. It was actually due to a, a bad experience with paper straws that pretty much everyone has experienced by now. And so we decided to make something better and we spent about a year developing the paper straws that we sell today. They don't get soggy, 
they don't taste like paper, they don't fall apart. Um, and we produce sizes from cocktail straws all the way up to your bubble tea straws. And then from there, uh, we've come up with a cup that completely eliminates the need for a plastic lid. So our cold cup, uh, it's almost like a takeout container where you fold these four flaps and it creates uh, a lid with a hole for a straw. It's all one piece. So it's all 100% plastic free, completely eliminates the need for plastic lids. So saves you space, which is a, a huge headache uh, for businesses to manage lids. And then you're also saving money on freight as well. So next time you're wondering about how all this single-use plastic rollout works, just remember that moves like this are a work in progress. But without innovation from community and business leaders, it would take a lot longer if we ever saw it at all. And while the final rollout of single-use plastic legislation doesn't land here in BC until December, know this, you can always just pass on using a plastic straw and bring your own reusable containers because every bit helps. And if you do want more information, you can check out the guide at Brandon's website. And remember, best of all, it's free. It's a, it's a free resource that we're offering and it can be found at sophieproducts.com. So it's S-O-F-I products.com. For Shaping BC, I'm Scott Schantz. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.